I hope everybody's doing well this morning. And I have a confession to make. Um, I told you last week that we would be covering a few topics that I'm not going to get to. Uh, so it's so next, I'll push some of these things to next week. I told you we were going to look at some of the teachers of the early church. We'll do that next week. Um, when I got into today's topic, uh, which is the deposit of the faith, uh, I realized that it was a little too big to cover in half a Sunday school class. So, um, so and then what that does is, is that gives me, I'm going to try to squeeze in the final persecution, which I told you at the beginning of the class that I would do at the end. So we'll see how next week pans out. Um, well, let me pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the deposit of truth that you've entrusted to the church. And Lord, we thank you for faithful men in the past and even, in, even today in the church who stand for that truth, who guard that truth and, and uh, exalt that truth. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment we ask that you would help us as we think through issues, we engage the culture, which we looked at last week. We Lord, Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom and uh, help us to be good students of your word. And, and Lord, we pray that you would, um, through your spirit, just uh, open our eyes and help us to correctly interpret your word. Thank you for this day. We pray um, that you would be honored. And Lord, even that you would prepare our hearts now to, to come before you in the worship service. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, last week we looked at basically attacks from without or coming from outside the church. Um, we looked at um, false teachings or not false teachings. That's what we're going to look at this week. Last week we were looking at attacks against Christianity um, from outside, from mainly you have in the Roman culture, you had all of these philosophers who were attacking the church and men within the church, the apologists stood up and defended the faith. Today we're going to look at the deposit of the faith. And really you can think of, of this week as attacks from within the church. We're going to look at really two main false teachings that sort of developed and, uh, and look at how the church responded to them. But why, I wanted to start by, by thinking about the question, why is it important? Um, and, and really, to start that discussion, um, I want to ask you a question. How would you define heresy? Okay, so moving away from orthodox or, or biblical truth, good. It's not, it's not a question you probably get asked often. It's, but it's a good question uh, because a lot of times I think we, we use the word heresy and it's good to think about what exactly are we talking about when we talk about heresy. Uh, and I think that's probably a, a really good definition. So there is a core... There's a core truth, uh, and, and it's helpful to know what that, those core truths are. Um, and then when you move outside of those core truths, then you're outside of orthodoxy and you're in heresy. Um, so open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I wanted just to kind of build a, a biblical case of why... Sound doctrine is important. 
And if you want to explore this topic, uh, highly recommend the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, and, and even Jude. So 1st Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes this. Again, he's writing to Timothy, and he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And he goes on to say in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And then you can go on. I mean, First Timothy, a lot of it is about, you know, defending sound doctrine. But, but skip down, if you would. Uh, he talks about uh, people who are teaching in, in well, actually, it's the next few verses. He says, now, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whoever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So again, Paul is writing to, to Timothy, and he's saying, guard this truth, guard this sound doctrine. Um, Guard the deposit, he says in chapter 6, verse 20. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. He says that again to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, 1.14. So these, this deposit of the faith is, are, are the core teachings. And if you depart from these core teachings, you have departed from the faith. And that's what we mean when we speak of heresy. Obviously, there's in-house debates. There's things that Christians disagree on. Um, that, that you can have disagreement on and still be in the body of Christ and in, in faith. What we're talking about are teachings that go against the core doctrines that if you hold to those teachings, you are no longer legitimately called a Christian. Sometimes <clears throat> we are called to avoid things in 2 Timothy 2.14. Um, Paul writes, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Uh, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Titus 3.9, Paul tells Titus, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So there are things that we need to avoid, but it's very clear that there's also things we need to oppose. And we see this, for example... Uh, y'all remember an instance in the, in the New Testament where Paul opposes somebody to their face? Another apostle, right? So Paul opposes Peter 
because his life does not line up with what he's teaching. Uh, Obviously, Peter wasn't in heresy. He just wasn't living out what he was teaching. Uh, But there are times we need to oppose. Um, And there are times people need to be silenced. For example, if you don't mind, turn to Titus. Chapter 1, verse 9. Here, uh, Paul is giving Titus some of the qualifications for elders. And he says in verse 9, He, that is someone uh, qualified to be an elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there's this idea, and you see this even in, in First and Second Timothy, uh, one of the qualifications for an elder is someone who can discern sound doctrine but also defend it uh, and, and defend against those who would contradict it. And if you look at verse 11, uh, he says, they, those who contradict it, must be silent since they are upsetting whole families. Um, so there is a, a point where sometimes we avoid, but there is also a, a legitimate cause for uh, opposition. Interestingly, Paul's, it seems as I read through the pastoral epistles, one of the things that you see clearly is Paul uh, gives Timothy and Titus, he tells them repeatedly to focus on the Word of God. So don't focus on the heresy, focus on the Word of God. You'll know the heresy because it stands in stark contrast to the truth. Um, and so throughout First and Second Timothy, he tells Timothy to preach the Word, for example. Uh, and then in the, the middle of Second Timothy chapter 3, when he's talking about the last days and the ungodliness, he ends it by basically saying, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, so, what is the solution or what is the answer to heresy? Well, it's the Word of God. It's the truth of the Word of God. And that requires uh, discernment on our part. By the way, I'll just say this. I, don't, I haven't seen any of the elders in here this morning. But I'll just say that we have a great group of elders at Calvary. And I feel like they do a really good job of, of this balance. Not being too quick... Some people are really too quick to engage in fruitless discussions. Uh, Some people aren't quick enough to condemn heresy. But I feel like we have, and we can be very thankful for the elders that we have because I feel like they do a really good job. Um, Okay, so let's look at two of the greatest challenges from within the church. And and primarily we're looking more at the second century. Uh, The first one we're going to look at is Gnosticism. Gnosticism has earlier roots, and in fact, some people see um, not a well-defined Gnosticism, but uh, some of the New Testament writers kind of speaking to the same ideas that we see in Gnosticism. There might have been an incipient Gnosticism during the New Testament times, but in the second century is really really where it started to take off. So what did Gnosticism teach? Um, We're going to look at some of the core teachings let me say up front, though, that Gnosticism is not well-defined um, because of the nature of Gnosticism. We will understand as we get into it, uh, but it was very pervasive. Gnosticism is not 
Uh, it's not a, it wasn't a group of people necessarily. It, it really invaded all aspects of life. So you had Christian Gnostics. You had uh, Gnosticism in Judaism. You had Gnosticism in the culture, in Roman culture. Um, and so it was very pervasive. It, it was not well defined as far as um, what they believed um, because a lot of it was based on secret teachings. The word Gnosticism comes from the word Gnosis, uh, which you may know that that means knowledge. Uh, these teachers claim that they had a special knowledge, a mystical knowledge, uh, a secret knowledge. They had claimed that they had access to a truer, deeper knowledge uh, than most people, and that this secret knowledge is the key to salvation. And we're going to look at some of their beliefs and, and how this played out. Really, at the root of Gnosticism is dualism, um, the idea that all matter is evil, spirit's good, matter's evil. We saw this um, last week, but basically the idea that the physical world is bad, the spiritual world is good. Dualism. They believe that all matter is evil, or at best, it's not real. So what does that uh, mean for human beings? Well, for the Gnostic, human beings are eternal spirits that have been imprisoned or exiled is a word they would use in the body. So every human being has a divine spirit within them. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> every human being has a divine spirit or a spark of divinity within them, and, but it's imprisoned in the body. And the way that you set this free is by this secret knowledge, this mystical knowledge. So let's get into the teachings. Um, what did the Gnostics believe about creation? And here, I'm, mainly when I'm looking at this, I'm looking at the, the Christian form of Gnosticism um, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the church and heresies in the church. So creation. Well, if you have this dualistic world, a dualistic view of the world, what do you do with creation? Gnosticism basically believed that all reality, true reality, is spiritual, not physical, not material. And that there is a supreme being, but this supreme being, according to Gnosticism, had no plan to create a physical world. Uh, rather, he created lower spiritual beings, uh, and they refer to those as eons, and the and we don't know how many, there's a bunch of eons. Basically, these eons were lower spirits uh, that were created by the supreme being. One of these eons fell into error one day and made a mistake and created the world. Um, and so that's how creation happened. Uh, it's bad because it was a mistake. Um, however, there are still sparks of the divine in the material world, and that's where human beings come in. Um, we've talked about the spark of the divine being imprisoned. So how, do you, how does one achieve salvation? Uh, obviously, the problem, according to Gnosticism, is that we don't have the right kind of knowledge, uh, that there is this truth, there is this spirituality that is true reality, and, but it's trapped, it's imprisoned. And so how is one saved? Well, in order to achieve liberation... Uh, a messenger must come to awaken us from our spiritual dream or confusion. So we're spiritually confused, we're imprisoned, and we need someone, someone 
from the supreme being to help us understand how to escape the imprisonment. Gonzalez uh, describes it this way, our spirits are asleep, according to this belief, within our bodies being driven by impulses and passions of the body, and someone must come from beyond to remind us of who we really are and to call us to struggle against our incarceration. Secondly, they believed, uh, they believed in this uh, uh, elaborate, so you have creation, you have the earth, but then there's these spheres, uh, a lot of levels of spheres that are ruled by these lower beings, these lower gods, uh, and they're not, they're not, they're working against us. They're trying to keep us from finding our true spiritual spirituality. And so, in order to reach spiritual fullness, we have to break through all these fears um, and, and do it uh, despite these evil powers who are working to prevent our progress. And that's where the person of Christ comes in. Uh, according to Gnosticism, we need a messenger. Christ is that messenger. Um, they rejected the humanity of Christ. They re- obviously, if... if if, material wor- if the material world is evil, then Christ can't have a physical body. Rather, what, what Christ had was what appeared to be a physical body. And so, um, Christ is simply a messenger who has come down to teach us the true knowledge or gnosis. They also rejected the uh, birth of Christ. Again, he couldn't have a physical body. And so you, you see there's major problems all the way through this view of Christianity. So what does that mean? How does that... Well, let me get to Scripture, and then I'll talk about what does it mean. Uh, what is their view of Scripture? Well, Gnostics didn't really deny Scripture, but they read it allegorically. Um, they, read, they would read passages and read a deeper meaning into the passages. Not only that... Uh, but they accepted other books as more authoritative than the New Testament writings and the Old Testament writings. And so you would have, for example, the, the Gospel of Thomas. And there were other Gnostic writings, but that is one that's come to light, um, I think, in 1945 um, with the uh, discovery of the Nag Hammadi text, all these Gnostic writings that were discovered. And so uh, you had all these Gospels that were written by Gnostic teachers, and they were as authoritative, if not more authoritative, than Scripture. Um, But even when they accepted Scripture, they read it allegorically. Um, What what does this mean? If you're a Gnostic, how do you live life? If you have this view of the material world as being evil, and what's true is the spiritual realities, well, there's really two responses you can have. You either become an ascetic because the body's bad, and so any of the passions of the body you have to avoid, you have to do away with. That's one response. So you avoid all pleasure, anything that has to do with the body, you avoid it. On the other hand, some Gnostics said, well, yeah, the the body's bad, but the spirit's good, and it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Um, It's the spirit that matters, and so you had this... Uh, license to do anything. You just let your passions go. It didn't matter because it, that's not what's really important. What's really important is the spiritual. 
Um, so that's, that's Gnosticism. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going with Marcionism next. And, and instead of telling you how the church responded, uh, I'm going to save that for the, for the end. So Marcionism is the second major heresy in the second century. Um, and I'm only focusing on these two. There were some other ones that weren't quite as, as, as um, extreme. Within the group, if you think about heresy, there is a range of, of dangers regarding heresy. There are some that are very dangerous because they deny fundamental things like Gnosticism. We're going to see with Marcionism the same thing. Uh, there's other heresies that would still be considered heresies, but they're not as dangerous because they don't deny some of the fundamental. Uh, they just maybe deny one or two. So, uh, who was Martian? Martian was a, um, was a, he grew up as the son of a bishop, so he grew up in the church. Um, he moved to Rome in around 135 AD. He was accepted into the church of Rome. Uh, stories are told that he gave a large sum of money to the church, uh, a sum that would be the equivalent of a, of a hundred years wages. So, a lot of money. Um, so he was in the church. However, uh, some of his ideas started to get out in the church, and the church excommunicated him in 144. Um, and so some of the things that really got him in trouble, he had a profound dislike for the material world, and he had a profound dislike for Judaism. And we're going to see some of how that plays out. So some of his ideas got him in trouble. Again, he was excommunicated, and to the church's credit, they gave him his gift back, uh, the large gift that he gave them. One writer says that Marcion was the most successful heretic in the early church. So how do we judge the success of a heretic? Well, uh, this person says that he was successful because pretty much anyone who was uh, anyone in the early church wrote against Martian. Um, everyone, and if you look at the early church fathers, wrote against this guy. So uh, his teachings were somewhat pervasive and definitely seen as being dangerous. Polycarp, for example, called him the firstborn of Satan. Um, I guess he didn't want to mince his words. Uh, secondly, he he's su successful as a heretic in that he started his own church, planted many churches, and in fact, his churches were successful for about a hundred years. Um, <clears throat> they did have a problem, and they, uh, eventually they did die out because of some of his teachings. Mostly it had to do with the body. He was really against the material world, thought that, uh, again, the body, very strict, very ascetic, uh, believed that uh, sex was bad, and so anything that had to do with the body was bad, and so you avoided it. Well, you can imagine that's not going to go well if you're trying to build a church. Um, and so uh, his church eventually did die out. Uh, very strict, uh, by all accounts, he was a very disciplined man um, and very, um, very critical, very hardcore his main thing, so his teaching, really with Gnosticism, they had a lot of different teachings. You can really sum up Marcion's uh, false teaching with one thing, uh, and, then, and then sort of that one root false teaching has some branches that go out from it. Uh, his big thing was the God of the Old Testament was not the same as the God of the New. So <clears throat> Marcion 
would read the Old Testament and he would see, for example, a God of justice. And he'd read the New Testament, he'd see a God of forgiveness. And we still hear things like this today. Uh, he looked at the Old Testament and he saw corruption. He looked at the New Testament and he saw restoration. And you have the, the Old Testament, God is a God of wrath. The New Testament, God is a God of love. In the Old Testament, the God commanded Israel to conquer other nations. Uh, the God of the New Testament commands the followers of Jesus to love their enemies. The Old Testament God is a God who gives the law. The New Testament God gives the gospel. The Old Testament God is a strict judge. The New Testament God is a loving father. So you can kind of see uh, Marcion, um, and when we get to scripture, I'll explain this a little bit more, uh, but Marcion really saw contradictions with the Old Testament and the New. In his mind, he could not rectify the differences. And so he would see Jesus teaching, and this is, he really got hung up on this when Jesus was talking about false teachers. You know, Jesus said that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. Well, so he really took that and he, for example, in Isaiah 45, 7, which he really harped on, uh, it says this, God speaking, he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And so Martian looked at the Old Testament, he looked specifically at this passage and and partly misunderstood it, and partly had no room for a God who was sovereign over all things. Um, and he said, bad fruit, bad God. Looked at the New Testament, good fruit, good God. Um, he held to a very literal wooden hermeneutic, and um, he really had no room for theological nuance, he did not allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and so he basically decided, well, let me, let me just move through his teaching, with creation. Uh, no surprise, Martian had an element of dualism, not to the extreme that the Gnostics had it, uh, but definitely he did not like the material world, thought it was not good. The world was created by a lesser God, he believed, the God of the Old Testament. By the way, he called the God of the Old Testament Yahweh, and he called the God of the New Testament Father. Um, Yahweh created the, the world, uh, and, and, and that's why it's not good, because Yahweh is not, he's the bad God. He's an evil God. What about Christ? Um, he believed that Christ was not predicted by the Old Testament. Christ was new. That the Messiah, or the, the, the Messiah that was predicted in the Old Testament uh, has not come. Jesus is a new thing. Um, in, in, no way, in no way related to the Old Testament, which you can understand. If you're Marcion and you discredit the Old Testament and you see everything in the Old Testament as bad, then you can't really read the Messianic prophecies and think, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus is this new thing that God sends. His, God sent his son. That's a new thing. It wasn't predicted in the Old Testament. He also denied the humanity of Christ, and he also denied the birth of Christ. 
So what do you do with Scripture if you're Marcion? You look at pretty much all of the Bible, not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament, and you see not that they're different, you see that they're the same. So what do you do? Well, Marcion decided the Old Testament was not God's word, that was Yahweh, that was not the New Testament God, and so he rejected the Old Testament. But he also rejected most of the New Testament. Um, obviously, you, ha- you can't have Matthew, um, Mark, or Luke, for that matter, um, because they portray the Old Testament and the New Testament um, as Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. He accepted Luke, but he modified Luke. Because he denied the birth, you obviously can't have the nativity, uh, the story of the nativity. So the first three chapters of Luke, just get rid of them. Um, Also, he had to get rid of some other passages in Luke. Um, He liked Paul, uh, but there were problems in Paul too. So he even cut part of the Pauline epistles out. So basically what you end up with is part of the gospel of Luke and part of the Pauline epistles. And that was Marcion's Bible. Uh, Obviously, you see problems with both of these uh, teachings. They're not compatible with Christianity. They're not compatible with the truth, the sound doctrine that we have been passed down. And so the church is going to respond. And the church is going to respond in three ways. Uh, First of all, the church realizes that they need to, because you have... Marcion denying part of the New Testament books um, and, and Gnosticism adding books. So the church decides we need a canon, and I'm, I'm simplifying it. Um, they realize we need to recognize the books that are truly inspired works of God. And so um, the church starts to develop what is considered the canon, and I'm, I'm really trying to think of a better way to put this. Uh, the Old Testament was always pretty much accepted. There were no questions about the Old Testament. The Apocrypha was not accepted until later. The early church fathers did not accept the Apocrypha books as being uh, inspired, but by the end of the second century, uh, the four Gospels were recognized, Acts was recognized, Paul's letters were recognized as uh, inspired works of God. There were a few books at the end of the New Testament that still, not that they weren't recognized, but the, the church as a whole, there were some discussions over which ones were inspired and which ones weren't. So, uh, so this brings up a question. Um, is the canon of Scripture merely a construct of the early church, as some claim today? Um, and probably throughout church history. Uh, this is the old, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, the church already had an idea, the books that were... They, they knew which books were inspired. The reason people today, and you think of a lot of modern movements, will look back and go, well, those books were labeled canonical by... They weren't really canonical. The church identified them and, and gave them authority. Um, that's not 
the view that Protestants take. Uh, the Protestants take the view that the, these books were, were canonical. They were inspired by God. All the church did was, was identify them as such. Um, let me give you some examples. The, the early church fathers saw a distinction between the New Testament books and their own writings. For example, Polycarp wrote to the church at Philippi not very long after Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And he said this in his letter, This is a pastoral letter, but it is not on the same level with the letter you received from Paul. That is the word of truth. This is my sermon, my advice, my counsel to you. Ignatius wrote this in a letter to the Romans, I do not order you as Peter and Paul. They were apostles. So the books that were in the canon were canonical because they were inspired. The early church knew that. It's just now that's being attacked. They never really thought they needed to have a formalized canon. Now it's coming under attack. They're seeing the need to formalize it. B.B. Uh, Warfield uh, uses this illustration. He says that uh, the books of the, of the Bible, the canon, are like a road, the true road. The church is merely a signpost saying this is the true road. The, that road is the true road, regardless of whether the signpost says it or not, right? So the church is the true, I mean, I'm sorry, the road is the true road, whether or not the church recognizes it as the true road or not. Um, and so what, what you're seeing is, is you're seeing Martian come along and go, no, that's not the true road. The true road's really over here. And you see Gnostics going, yeah, that is a true road, but there's other true roads uh, and so the church is responding by saying, no, this, this is the right road. Uh, in, in creating the canon, the church simply recognized the authority the books of the Bible already had by virtue of inspiration. So that's the first thing they did. They're, they're first, they see the danger of Marcionum, they see the danger of Gnosticism, and now they're responding with the canon. They also respond with a creed. Because you have all of these people in the churches, right? Marcion was part of the church at Rome for many years until they realized some of his teachings were, were not in line with the scriptures. You had Gnosticism that had invaded. I mean, think about Gnosticism not as a specific core beliefs. It's like a pervasive view of the world that has infiltrated the church. And so uh, the early church fathers started formulating creeds. Uh, oftentimes these creeds were used at baptism, and they would pretty much ask, like you see a baptism today, a lot of times I know at our church we have someone give their testimony. Um, uh, you'll see in, in some other churches they'll say, uh, do, have you made a profession? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? It's kind of the similar idea that they were doing, except it was a little more elaborate. And so they realized there was a need to make a statement of faith that only those who were um, orthodox could say or agree to. And the first one is the Apostles' Creed. I've actually given you the, the Apostles' Creed in your notes. Uh, this is one of the earlier uh, versions of it. It's had some changes over time. But this is what... This is what they would, these are questions they would ask someone at baptism. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Ghost, and, the, and Mary, the virgin, who was crucified, 
back to Jesus, under Pontius Pilate and died and rose again at the third day, living among the dead and ascended unto heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the quick and the dead. Do you believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? And the person being baptized would respond to this in the affirmative before they were baptized. But notice you can definitely see that the Apostles' Creed was written with Gnosticism and Marcionism in mind. Um, the word in the Greek, as the books that I'm reading tells me, uh, for Almighty, do you believe in God, uh, the Father Almighty? That word Almighty literally is all-ruling. So what they were saying is, do you believe that God rules over everything, even the material world? Um, notice maker of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth. There is no dualism here. They're eliminating dualism. And a Gnostic and a Marcionite could not affirm these two things. And then it gets to the Son of God. Um, very Notice the birth of Christ. Um, notice the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection. All of these things a Gnostic and a Marcionite could not agree to. Um, also, the Holy Church. Uh, this was a recognition of the authority of the true church. And so you had creeds begin to be developed. Again, these are like doctrinal statements. Um, these You have more and more creeds. Right now, we're dealing with Gnosticism, Marcionism. We're going to have other heresies that come up in later years. And you're going to see other creeds that are developed. Usually when you had a church council, they were meeting over a specific doctrinal issue. Um, and, and they would write a creed at the end of it. Basically, it was a statement of faith. This we believe. Um, and so you had this idea of a holy Catholic church, Catholic with a little c, a universal church that held to a, a set of beliefs known as orthodoxy. So, uh, and that's where we get into the, the last response. That's the apostolic succession. So, everyone agreed, Gnostic, Martian, the church, the early church fathers, everyone agreed that the true message was the message taught by Jesus. And so that's why it's, careful, it's important sometimes to define your terms. Um, we can use the same language and have completely different ideas in mind. So everyone agreed the true message was the one taught by Jesus. The Gnostics claimed that they had secret access to that original message that had been lost. Um, and it was through a succession of secret teachers in the church. Marcion claimed that he had access to the gospel uh, through the gospel of Luke and Paul's writings. So for Marcion, what we have, the true teaching of Jesus, you only find it in Luke and, and, Paul's, and Paul. The early church fathers, however, claimed that it, the true gospel was the actual teaching of Jesus, and this is where the apostolic succession came in. Um, it was important because in the early church, a lot of these guys knew the apostles, and so if we want to use uh, Warfield's Road, they walked down this road with the apostles. They were careful, though, to distinguish their writings from the apostles' writings. But they knew of the apostles' writings. 
and they knew the apostles, many of them did. Now we're moving away from that. We're in the second century. We're moving away from that time where you had direct access or really close access to the apostles. And so uh, now you have what was considered the apostolic succession or the teachings of the apostles that were passed down to church leaders, whether that be elders or bishops, and different churches had different um, um, authorities. Some just had one bishop, some had ruling elders or ruling bishops. Uh, Whatever the case is, they saw the the apostles passing this teaching down to the churches. So the, the leaders that took over churches, like, for example, you would have Timothy or Titus, these were men approved by the apostles. They had the authoritative message. And so as the leadership would begin to change, the message would be approved, or the new leadership would be approved by the old leadership. And so you have this idea of apostolic succession and um, the, uh, the uh, original church teachers would look back to and, and even trace the apostolic um, succession of, of each church. A lot of times, we, when we talked about this earlier, there were a lot of churches who tried to have or tried to claim certain apostles um, as founding their church, and a lot of that was not true. Um, but you did have this idea of basically the early church fathers argued Look, if Jesus had a secret teaching, he would teach that to his apostles. And if the apostles had this secret teaching, they would have taught that to the church. They would have taught that to the leaders who took over the church, and then that would have been passed down and down. And so they're basically the argument with apostolic succession is there is no secret message uh, because if there was it would still be continuing today because the apostles would have made sure it got passed down. So that's apostolic succession. You can start to see some of the roots that would be developed later in the Middle Ages. Um, But at this point, basically all they're saying is we have apostolic succession in the church, therefore you're wrong, Gnostic, you're wrong, Marcion. Um, and so we have what has been truly passed down from Christ. So that's the church's response to uh, the heresies in the second century. Um, again, we'll get into further heresies as we get into the fourth and fifth, sixth centuries, uh, and even continuing on. Uh, again, there's creeds. We have the idea the canon will come to be uh, fully developed in the fourth century, and um, Again, I don't, it's not that the church <laughs> came up with the canon. They're just recognizing certain books as being canonical. Um, and, and we see the church's teaching. And there's a succession of that teaching given to the churches. Um, are there any questions? I haven't been asking questions. Yes, sir? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Right. The gospel of confidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Recognition. One would have been just the apostleship, either it was written by one of the apostles mm-hmm. or a close associate, i.e. Luke or Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, that it was well recognized and circulated among the churches as the apostleship. Yep. Yeah, as well as many of the Gnostic writers, uh, if you look at some of the early Gnostic writings, it's very obviously a contradiction to what we see in the New Testament. You're absolutely right on all accounts, which, by the way, is why some of the later books were a little bit longer, uh, like Jude, for example. Um, it, they had to figure out, is this legitimately a, a, a canonical book? Uh, yeah, you, if it was written by an apostle, it's inspired. Uh, if it, and then some of the close associates, as you were pointing out. Um, but then some of the books that were uh, a little bit later, you have Hebrews, because we don't know who wrote it. Uh, and you had Jude, who would not have been an apostle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why were these books included in Christ's life? In almost every case, I, I could be corrected on this, but I think in almost every case, they were written after, long after the disciples or the apostles were dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a good point, too. Um, yeah, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Gospel of Thomas was a, around 150. Um, and then the books in the New Testament, the, the latest one is Revelation, if memory serves. Uh, and that was, you know, late first century, but still well in the first, easily in the first century. And so, yeah, a lot of these books were written later. Um, and you did have different books being written by the early church fathers. You had letters written to churches. You have Clement writing. You have Polycarp. You have Ignatius. All of these guys are writing letters to the church. But they recognized my letter is not authoritative like Paul or Peter. Um, so, yeah, that's a good, good distinction, too. Uh, the, the, the New Testament books were written earlier, whereas a lot of these books that claim authority were written later. Right. Yeah. Good. Thanks, Larry. Well, my time is up. Let me close this in prayer. 
Father, we just want to thank you again for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us um, to be good students of your word. Lord, I ask that you would give uh, your church discernment uh, in these times. Lord, we desperately need discernment and knowing error from truth. And uh, Father, we ask that you would give us that ability. Uh, Lord, I thank you for our church. Thank you for our elders. Uh, just pray that you would continue to bless them as they um, lead this church and protect this church. And uh, Father, I just thank you for them. And again, just ask that you would protect them. Lord, we ask that you would um, help us this morning to worship you as only you deserve. Um, Lord, that our hearts would be pure before you and that our lips would sing uh, in, in chorus with our hearts. And uh, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.